You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, thank you for this, uh, this Sunday in Advent. And I pray that in your mercies today, as we look again at this uh, epistle from your apostle, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to perceive and understand what it is you have to teach us. And I pray that you'll fill us with joy and hope, Lord, in this season. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, when I decided to do Second Corinthians for this particular series, in, in, many, in many respects, the reason why I wanted to do Second Corinthians was because, because of the text we're going to look at this morning. <laughs> okay? um, th- this is a text that I have sort of fiddled with, and it's been really a part of my own sort of thought and spiritual life and really intellectual life for... Since, since my dissertation days, it's been over a decade now, so th- this is a text that means a lot to me, and I've spent a lot of time with it, even though I don't feel like I sort of have a grasp on it. Um, but it was this text that made me think about the book of 2 Corinthians as a specifically Advent letter, in, in the sense of giving us a message in between the times, and I'm conscious of our stained glass behind us, you know, that we live in between the two realities of the, of the advent of our Lord, his first advent, and then his, his second advent in time. Um, and I, I, I think that, that kind of, what's the message and word of hope that's given to us in between those two moments? And that's the moment that we live into now. You, you, for those of you that were in the 9 o'clock service, you felt that, I think, in the character of our liturgy, and in, and in the ways in which even the music that we sang sort of lent, it leaned into that particular dynamic. We know the Lord has come, and yet we await his, his coming again. Uh, so I want to look at this text here this morning with that question in mind. Uh, we've been spending most of our time over the past three weeks speaking a lot about Paul's apostolic identity. How did Paul understand himself? We will turn to that again to end out the series next week as we sort of wrap up thinking about Paul's own self-understanding as an apostle. We'll turn back to that. Um, But this morning, I want to focus specifically on what Paul's apostolic message is and was. So we've been raising the question about who did Paul understand himself to be. Now we want to think pretty closely in this text here with what Paul's what the content and the substance of Paul's apostolic message actually was. So with that in mind, let me read to you these verses. And I would say, you know, there, there are certain, um, I don't know how one would say, t-shirt verses, uh, poster verses, uh, um, bumper sticker verses that we have from the Apostle Paul that we all probably know pretty well. Uh, for those of you who were maybe reared in the world that I was reared in, say the Romans' road to salvation, we all know Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We, there are certain Pauline verses that stand out. I would say I will read two verses to you in the reading that we have today that are probably verses that will stand out to you. Uh, if you've been in the church for a while and if you have heard Paul talked about. So see if you can clue into what those two verses are. Let me read this text to you in its entirety. Uh, Verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, what's Paul talking about here? Paul's talking about a really rather chilling account 
that he gives us at the beginning of this chapter, the verses that we're really not going to explore this morning, but a really rather chilling account of the fact that every human being will have their moment before God um, in the final judgment. That's, um, that's a hard thing. That's an Advent theme. Um, we will all have an encounter with God where we um, meet God and have a conversation. Now that's almost too much for us to think about, really, uh, in the sense of really being able to get our minds around what it means to appear um, before the Lord. But we know that we are that our earthly home is not here. Uh, I mean, our final home is not here. We have a heavenly abode. That's what Paul is talking about here in the first few chapters. And then this is what he says in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. So Paul's having a very personal conversation here. We believe that the fear of the Lord is a proper motivating reality. Uh, the fact that God is God and that we will have an encounter with him, that should elicit from us a certain kind of, I think, visceral response. We, we will have a moment uh, before the Lord. And because of that, Paul, because of that reality, Paul lives with that reality that motivates his own apostolic ministry. Because that's true, I feel burdened and driven to persuade others, to really have a care and concern for other people knowing that they too will have that moment where they have to stand before God. What we are is known to God. Our true identity is known to Him. Um, and again, we could get lost in this, but you think about that particular episode in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus talks about those um, who are the sheep and the goats, right? Who are sort of split apart at that final day of judgment, and He comes to them and He says, um, to the one, I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. And then that group says to Jesus, well, when did we not do those things? And he said, when you didn't do it to the least unto these. They, they were unaware of the fact that they, were, uh, they, that they were not of the Lord. And then, and this is the part that's so shocking about that little, that little episode in Matthew. And then... The sheep, he says to them, and you fed me and you clothed me. And do you, and do you remember the response? It's, it's a kind of equal response of surprise. Well, when did we do that? Well, when you fed those who were in need and when you clothed those who were naked and when you gave a drink to those who were thirsty and you did it in my name, when you were doing it to the least of these, you may not have known this, but you were doing it unto, unto me. Um, Paul is speaking here about the knowledge that God has about our true identity. God knows who we really are. Um, there's a sense in which God's knowledge of us, and by the way, God's knowledge of himself, transcends our own knowledge of ourselves and our knowledge of him as well. And lest this become a, a, a heavy word to you, let it be a liberating word to you. Because Jesus tells us elsewhere that those who call out to the Father and the Son are the ones who have known his voice and heard his voice and they are his sheep. And that knowledge of God that we have in Christ is a knowledge that does not come from any act of internal self-generation. We don't make that happen. We don't actualize that. That is the operative work of God by his Spirit and his Son that makes us alive 
to know who we really are and knowing that our genuine selfhood is found in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And Paul's apostolic ministry is a ministry that's driven to the nations and to the peoples who are out there to let them know who they are in Jesus. That's what's driving him. So he goes on in verse 12 to say, we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. Paul says, I want your confidence to be in something that's real and substantial, not something that's ephemeral and merely external, but something that's real and substantial. And we know that when Paul begins to to talk about boasting language, he's real clear to clarify what it means to boast. If you force me to boast... I will boast in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. So Paul is pushing the Corinthians here toward um, gospel confidence and things that are true and stable and enduring. Not the outward appearances, not the shimmera, not the ephemeral things that come and then there go. The kind of puff of wind that's here and then it's gone. And really the kind of things that, I guess, left on autopilot in our culture we tend to applaud and get excited about. These are the things that are so fascinating, the the shiny, chromed wheels of existence. And Paul's saying, I don't want you to get all excited about the chrome and the shine. I want you to recognize the substance of who you really are. And the substance is found in the person and work of Jesus. And if you go elsewhere, like little children, you know, chasing after the shining lights, you're you're heading into an area that's not substantial and genuine and, and enduring. So he goes on in verse 13. This is all Paul here speaking about his devotion to the Corinthians and his devotion to the world. Why? Because it's the fear of God that's motivating him. It's the hope of the gospel that's motivating him to communicate this truth to them because nothing else is long-lasting and enduring and and eternal. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, I love this, if if we're out of our minds, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, it's for you. In whatever state you find me, do you get the sense of what he's saying here? If, if, I, if I've gone crazy or if I'm in my right mind, everything for me is for you. My identity as an apostle is wrapped up in the fact that my service to you is a service of the gospel. That's, that's what compels me, whether I'm out of my mind or in my right mind. Compost mentis or not, right? Now getting to verse 14. Here he begins to speak about Christ's motivating love. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ compels us, as I think what the King James Version says. I like that. It drives us. It's the fuel of the engine of Paul's vocational identity. It's the fuel that drives his existence in this world. It's the love of Jesus Christ. And here's a fun thing for you all. And I, I won't, you know, I don't want to get sort of lost in grammar land. I've got a, I've got a colleague here who's a Greek grammarian. I'm going to be careful. Um, but there's a funny thing about these, these of term, terms in the Bible. Love of Christ, right? Um, that there's a, they're kind of slippery in how we understand these particular kind of possessive phrases. Is it my love for Jesus that compels me? Or is it the love that Christ has for me that compels me to work for you? And the answer is, I think, 
Yes. Right. There's a kind of, there's a kind of um, fun play here with language that Paul's letting you know that it's, yes, it's my love for Jesus that compels me. But it's also, this, in the same phraseology, Christ's love for me and for you, that it's the love of Christ itself that com- compels and controls us. Why? Because this is the conclusion of all things, Paul says. One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Now we're starting to get into gospel logic. The one has come to die in the place of the many. And because he's come to die for the many, those who are in him have also died. There's a very real sense for the Apostle Paul that the atoning work of Jesus Christ that happened in a moment in time, so long ago, when Jesus came into the world in the season that we're celebrating now, and as he then moved in his life toward his passion and death and resurrection, there's a very real sense in which the Apostle Paul understands, are you ready for this, that our person, that our selfhood, that our identity, you, were there in that moment. Memory in the Bible is a, and by the way, I think memory in the Bible and memory in literature is a fascinating subject matter. Memory in the Bible, think about the Passover, is not merely a calling something to mind. It's an active participation in the event itself. When the Jews celebrated Passover and they remembered God's deliverance of them at the, at the edge of the Red Sea, when they, when they celebrated that year after year after year, there was a very real sense in which they understood that activity itself as transporting them into that moment because that's who they really are. We're an Exodus people. We're a delivered people. And our memories of what Christ has done for us are not just a calling to mind of the past, but it's a recognition of who we truly are. There's a very real sense in which Paul's understanding of our being in Christ is an understanding of our personal identity being located in him then and there, here and now, and in the future. That's who we are. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that because one has died for all, therefore all have died. We're we're, we're dead. We're the walking dead with him. And he died for all so that those who might live Because those who recognize that their true identity is with the one who hung on a cross and then raised from the dead no longer live for themselves. Think about this in terms of baptism logic, right? I love this when uh, Dean Pearson will bring uh, the little children into the sanctuary and have them all sit here. I remember the last time I had a a child, one of my own children, just sprawled out right there on the floor. Um, and, and they bring the little children in, and they, they baptize them here. And I, I remember, you know, a, a, uh, Dean Pearson will grab some water and throw it on those kids, which, you know, we're not... Anyway, he'll, he'll do that, and then um, he'll say, remember your baptism. Right. Um, our baptism is, is our being brought into the very life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our baptism is meant to draw us into the reality of who we really are. It's a stamp on our selfhood and our knowledge and understanding of what it means to be. See, this isn't just about these walls here and the nave of the Advent Church. This is like the sum total of your being is a baptized being. 
Um, and here Paul is telling us that when you have been identified with him in his death and in his resurrection, that resurrection entails with it a certain kind of responsibility. And what is it? We don't live for ourselves anymore. But we live for him, for who, who for their sake died and was raised. I am crucified with Christ, Paul says in Galatians. It's no longer me that's living. My true selfhood's wrapped up elsewhere. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So this is Paul, and I, don't, I mean, we have to kind of take this with big heaping spoonfuls of modesty here as we, as we read these verses, but Paul is giving us a kind of motivation for the entirety of our existence. Everything. For what it means to be in your vocation, where you work, and in our families, and as we go and enjoy our leisure lives together, all of it is driven and compelled and shaped and framed by the love of Christ that compels us and drives us because it tells us that our true identity is the one who died and was raised again. And believe it or not, as radical and profound a metaphysical statement as it can be, you're wrapped up in all of that. Your selfhood is wrapped up in his going down into the grave and then coming up again. And now, Paul gets into some verses that I just, these are good. Oh, this is good stuff. Verse 16. Now he's going to speak about new creation. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. According to the principles that mark and drive this age, this world. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Why does Paul say that? He says that because it's almost as if Paul is saying, do you remember me writing to you in 1 Corinthians 15? <laughs> you remember that other letter where I told you that Jesus Christ raised from the dead and because he raised from the dead, that changes everything? Do you remember me telling you that? Yes, we one time perceived Christ according to the flesh, according to the principles and the thought patterns of this age. That's why we were so completely dismayed and disappointed when they killed him. Because that meant game, set, match. This thing's over. Remember the despair of those disciples on the road to Emmaus? Some of the saddest verses in all the Bible. Um, we thought he was the Messiah, but they just killed him. Which means what? He's not the Messiah. That Messiahs don't get killed. We once perceived Christ according to the flesh, but no longer. Why no longer? Because he raised from the grave. Because he's alive. Because he is. And his isness is wrapped up in the very core of what it means for Jesus to be. He had to, I mean, it's as if, now Paul wants you to know, if you follow Jesus from the infancy narratives on in the Gospels, his whole identity is wrapped up in the fact that he has to be. I mean, the resurrection is almost a necessity by the very nature of the movement of the story itself. He has to be. He is. So we don't perceive Christ according to the flesh any longer. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. That's probably the verse you know. Right? If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Um, so can we talk about translating the Bible. This is, we'll get a little thick here for a second. 
Um, if we have different translations that were around, I, I, think the, I think the NIV says something like this. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Um, I think the King James Version says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Um, th- this, is, this is what it's saying, and I, this, I, I'll, I'll tell my students never do this, but I'm about to do it. Th- this is what it says in the Greek, all right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, two words, kine ktisis, which is translated new creation. In other words, and these aren't bad translations, right? So I'm not trying to do a kind of will-to-power move on you here. These aren't bad translations, but, but they're interpretations on what kine katissis means, new creation. In other words, the original doesn't have he is a, or there is a new creation. What the original has, if I can put it that way, is if anyone is in Christ, new creation. If you look at right down the page here, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Paul says, For he says, well, who's he? He is Isaiah the prophet. In a favorable time I listened to you. And in a day of salvation I have helped you. That's a quotation of Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. And look at how Paul interprets this verse in the next line. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul, throughout this entire section here, is playing according to the Isaiah play script. Isaiah is pressuring Paul's thought process here in these verses that we're so familiar with. And we don't have time to go there, but go read Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. Because there in Isaiah 65, the prophet promises a future day when there will be a new creation, a new heaven's and a new earth. So can I give you my gloss on this verse here, chapter 5, verse 17, one that we all know so well? This is my gloss on it. If you find anyone who's in Jesus, if you have an encounter with someone who's met the risen Lord and it's changed their lives upside down, if you walk into a church and you find a community of believers who, sinful as they are, are learning together what it means to live in light of the lordship and the saving character of Jesus Christ. When you find those little episodes within this world, you need to know something. The new creation has happened. Isaiah's promises have been fulfilled. You're in that moment that Isaiah promised so long ago. Now is the new creation. You're in it. You're in the age of the resurrection of the dead. All of us here are a kind of down down payment, a, a deposit of God's future promises that in time he will make all things new. But the very fact that we're in Christ and that we know what it is to live in light of the lordship and the saving character of Jesus, Paul says that's exhibit A, that all the promises, the saving Cosmic altering promises of Isaiah are working themselves out in the now moment. Now is the time. Now is the day. So listen to what Paul continues to say. How does this compel him? Verse 18. All of this is from God. These little statements are so rich, right? 
He just made this cosmic claim about being in the new creation, that the new creation is on us. And then he says, just all, all this is from God. This is not something that we've generated. This is the, the work of God himself making good on his promises in our current moment. And how did he do it? Who through Christ, and here's a word that all of us I think know, but we might forget, this is unique to Paul. Paul's the only one who uses this kind of language in the New Testament. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and also gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Um, this is where Paul is playing uh, linguistic jujitsu, right? In other words, he's, he's borrowing a term that would have been common to the culture, and he's flipping it and infusing it with a substance that's driven by his understanding of the gospel of Jesus. Why? Because anyone, I think, in the first century world would have understood that this is how reconciliation occurs. Because kanlaso, that's the term here, was a word that would have been used in that world. Uh, let's, let's see. Um, David Tanner. I'll use some example. Uh, David and I have a little row. And uh, I get upset with David. And I express my disappointment and anger at him in a really ugly way in a Facebook post uh, in two days. Brace yourself, it's coming. Um, <laughs> I don't even have a Facebook account, but, uh, but I do. I have my wife do it, and so I do that. I've offended David Tanner, and reconciliation needs to occur. Everyone in the first century world would have understood that this is this is the process of reconciliation. The party that offended, that would be me, would have to make an initial move toward the one that I offended, so that reconciliation could occur. I, as the offending party, have to make the initial move. And Paul takes that concept and completely reverses it. That's not how reconciliation occurs according to God's economy of salvation. The one who's offended God, the one who's been sinned against, uh, he makes the first move toward us in a ministry of reconciliation. It's remarkable. Paul's taking something that's common to the culture and he's flipping it for the sake of a gospel presentation. God reconciles us to him in Christ. And then we have this ministry of reconciliation as well. Well, what does that ministry look like? Paul's going to tell us. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Well, how did he reconcile the world to himself? by not counting their sins against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And I like to think of this second part of verse 20 as Paul entering into the ministry of reconciliation in his own voice. This is what Paul's message of reconciliation looks like. We implore you on behalf of Jesus Christ, be reconciled to God. You see the language there? Be reconciled. It's a passive tense. In other words, recognize that you're in a position where you need the one that you offended to move toward you first in a moment of grace. And when you put yourself in that position of knowing that you're the one who's in need of divine grace and mercy, 
When you put yourself in the position of the prodigal son, making his way back to the father, speech in hand, ready to confess our sins. When you do that, the prophets of the Old Testament, the Gospels, the Apostle Paul, the whole biblical witness, witness, biblical witness testifies to this reality. You will never meet a God who does not move to you in mercy when you put yourself in a position to be reconciled, be reconciled to him. Why? Verse 21, because he gave everything for you. Here's the other verse that I imagine you know. Verse 21. For our sake, that's gospel language, by the way, on account of us, for you and for me, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what the early church fathers called the great exchange. He took on our human nature and the burden and judgment of our human sin so that he could give us something that we could never attain on our own, namely the righteousness that comes from God as a gift. That's the great exchange. And he assumed it all. There's a great line from the early church fathers. I think it's actually from Athanasius who got a little airtime in the sermon this morning. A great line from the 4th century. They would say something like, whatever is not assumed is not redeemed. And that's why Jesus being a man, a full human being, is really important. Because him becoming a man and taking on the, the, the status of one who is the object of our sin and our, our judgment, that is what allowed him to then give us the gift of righteousness. That's the ministry of reconciliation. And Paul understands that our lives are witnesses to that message. Be reconciled to God. And do you hear? It's, it's not a get your act together. Pull yourselves up by your own moral bootstraps. Get more religious. I mean, it's, it's, it's none of that. It's put yourself in a position to recognize that you are in desperate need of the saving grace of God, knowing that he's made that move to you. And when that happens, by the operative work of the Holy Spirit, Paul wants you to know something. You're in the new creation. You're in the first step of what he promised with the new heavens and the new earth. It's already breaking in on us. So Lord, thank you for these words. They're timeless promises where I, we see Paul and Isaiah the prophet separated by so much time and yet bound by a common message about what it means to be reconciled to the living God. I pray that you'll draw all hearts into you this morning and those who are struggling with doubt and discouragement and despondency. I pray, Lord, that you will let them be reconciled to you, to recognize that you are a God whose character is quick to show mercy. Look at how extravagant a love you showed for us in becoming sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.